Telemedicine continues to increase in popularity, but doctors need to understand the risks when communicating by email or phone. You're listening to ReachMD Radio on XM160, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Bruce Japson, the healthcare reporter with the Chicago Tribune, and joining me today is Dr. David Troxell. Dr. Troxell is medical director of The Doctor's Company, the largest national insurer of physician and surgeon medical liability with 44,000 member physicians. In his role, Dr. Troxell has developed guidelines to help physicians successfully navigate telemedicine liability risks. He practiced pathology for more than 35 years and is a clinical professor emeritus at the University of California, Berkeley. Dr. Troxell has published widely on risk management issues and speaks to state and national medical groups on a variety of these topics. Dr. Troxell joins us today from his offices in sunny Napa, California. David Troxell, welcome to ReachMD Radio on XM160, the channel for medical professionals. Thank you. It's nice to be here. Well, so first of all, if you could tell us a little bit, if we even know, about how widely telemedicine is used and how the doctor's company is involved with helping physicians in this regard. Well, frankly, there's really no good data on how widely telemedicine is used. And it's my impression, based on publications I've come across, that telecommunications, which were projected maybe three or four years ago to become a major portion of medical consultation and practice have not really quite taken off to the extent that was anticipated. And I suspect that this is due in part to the fact that older physicians are not comfortable using the computer and don't widely use uh, email, whereas physicians under the age of you know, 45 or 50 kind of grown up with computers and are much more uh, inclined to be comfortable using telecommunications. And is that kind of where the telemedicine is now? Because I remember, um, I've been writing about this, and I remember it just even maybe a decade ago might have been telephone or fax consultations. Is it pretty much all email now? Well, no, I don't think it's all email, but certainly the focus is on email primarily because for, I say younger physicians, but let's say physicians under 45 or 50, that would be their preference, I think. Uh, And it probably depends on where you practice. If you're in a more rural community or smaller town where people perhaps are more comfortable communicating by telephone, that probably still is quite popular. Now, I know a couple of months ago, the doctor's company issued some some tips, if you were, for telemedicine. And essentially, when you guys put these out, you were recommending that physicians educate themselves on the risks of telemedicine and implement safeguards that will help protect them from potential litigation. Um, are there any common ones right off the bat that you know that doctors are doing that maybe even they don't know what they're doing as far as risks? I think one of the points I'd like to make about telephone best practices is that it's important to have a conversation with patients and preferably put it in writing about what they should seek telephone advice for and what they should not seek it for. For example, telephone advice is best for minor problems, headaches, low-grade fever, stuffy nose, prescription refills, etc. But there are certain things that it is not well-suited for, such as chest pain, sudden shortness of breath, severe abdominal pain, those those may indicate an emergency and would be more appropriately seen by either an office visit or a visit to, you know, the local hospital emergency room. I also think it's important that physicians limit phone conversations to either themselves or their qualified staff, such as their nurses, nurse practitioners, physician assistants. It really isn't ideally suited for the office manager or receptionist. 
because if they could potentially give some advice that could end up in a legal situation, is that probably one of the reasons? That's exactly correct. And ideally, again, there really should be a written protocol prepared by the doctor for their staff and include such things as what questions to ask, which kinds of calls should be referred to the doctor, which sorts of calls might indicate an immediate trip to the emergency room, and which kind of calls could be scheduled for a routine office appointment. Another just tip is instruct your folks as well as yourself to avoid leading questions. For example, if a patient calls in and you know says they're having uh, some chest discomfort, it's better to say, well, tell me where your pain is, not tell me where your chest pain is, because you led the patient inadvertently by putting those words in their mouths. Most doctors know this because it's not really fundamentally any different from taking a history in the office, but their nurse practitioners and, and PAs may not know that. And also, they might be busy, and so it would probably be easy for them to get into a situation like this. Exactly. And the other good tip is if you leave instructions with the patient, always ask the patient to repeat the instructions back to you. It's been well documented that a lot of patients, no matter how clearly it's explained to them, really don't understand what a doctor has just told them. And a very good patient safety and risk management tip is after you've explained it to the patient, then say, now, would you repeat back to me what you understood that I just asked you to do? And that gets the patient off the hook and it tells you right away whether they did or did not really understand you. It's almost like they have to, you know, become sort of a lawyer in a courtroom or myself as a journalist, um, you ask a question again and get maybe a better quote. (laughs) Exactly, exactly. And prescribing by phone is another potential trap. In fact, I would say that's probably the highest risk area of telephone uh, communications. There are certainly reasonable indications for doing so, but as a general rule, the amount that's prescribed should be minimal, you know, usually just enough to get the patient to come to the office, and the patient should be instructed specifically to come to the office and, and where they can be you know, questioned and examined more before the prescription is filled in full. And it should always be documented in the medical record. That's terribly important that the conversation took place, that the symptoms were thus and such, that the drug was prescribed but only in a minimal amount, and the patient was instructed to come to the office as soon as possible, or in fact, an appointment was made on the telephone our physician listeners out there, should they have somebody listen in or who should take these notes? I mean, should they do it themselves or what would you, what kind of advice would you give them? Well, it might be ideal to have someone listening in, but from a practical point of view in a busy office setting, that's just not going to happen. So I think that what they should be asked to do is to take notes as they're having the conversation and then immediately enter that into the medical record. Well, if you're just joining us, or even if you're new to our channel, you're listening to ReachMD Radio on XM160. I'm Bruce Japson, the healthcare reporter with the Chicago Tribune. And joining me today is David Troxell, who is medical director of The Doctors Company, which is the nation's largest physician-owned medical malpractice insurance company. And what we're talking about is tips for telemedicine. Doctors get a lot of phone calls. Increasingly, they're answering a lot of questions. They have busy practices. Some are even getting paid for consultations, and Dr. Trox was just telling us about some tips that we were talking about, and one we just left off with is ask the caller to repeat the instructions back to you. If you could continue, doctor, this is very interesting. Yeah. The last point I'd make on telecommunications is 
when you do document the nature of the conversation in the medical chart, you should specifically include the nature of the inquiry. Why did the patient call? The person who actually took the call and discussed it with the patient. If there was a tentative diagnosis made, that should be entered into the chart. And usually there is going to be an action plan, and that should be entered into the chart as well. I probably once or twice a month see malpractice claims where there's no question in our mind that the doctor or his PA, for example, did tell the patient what they said they told the patient. But, you know, months later, they don't remember it in detail unless it's recorded. The patient almost never remembers it in detail, but often thinks that they really do, especially after they've consulted an attorney. And if it's not written down in the chart, you know, there's really no documentation. I mean, documentation is key to protecting the doctor. And is some of this just simply kind of slowing down? And if they had a policy, as you say, some safeguards and so forth, that it would be easier for them to remember to document this? Absolutely. Now, if we're ready, I could like move on into talking about email best practices, which are a little different. Yeah, that would be great if you could give us some tips in that regard, I think, because that that seems to be the predominant form of communication. And if we're talking about electronic health records, I think that that would be definitely a way to go. So if you could give us a couple of tips on that, that would be great. Well, number one, I think you need to be very, very careful what you put into an email. And it needs to be very professional And in fact, just as professional as if you have the patient in your office and you're talking to them. It's always important to remember, and a lot of us forget, that an email is a permanent record. And while you can delete it from your computer, in fact, you cannot erase it from the hard disk. And in some instances, if there were to be a subsequent suit, it may be recovered during the process of discovery. So a good general rule is don't put anything in an email that you're not really comfortable with if it were printed on the front page of the local newspaper, because it may. And don't get them. It's very easy for us when we're sitting in front of our computer to think we're just sharing our private thoughts or making an offhand comment, but it could become a public comment. Another point is that email should be very concise and very focused on whatever the problem is at hand. They shouldn't ramble on. There shouldn't be sorts of folksy conversations you might have in your office with the patient in front of you. It should really be right to the point and very clearly stated. Another thing I've seen that doesn't always happen, but it's very important, is that the physician should be sure that their contact information is included in an email. That's very easy to do. It can be put into the program you're using so that it always appears in an email. But at a minimum, it should include the physician's name, the name of their practice, and a phone number where they can be reached. Because even that would mitigate some risk if you're talking to a patient and so forth, if you're, you're going out of your way to help them in, in, in a way and saying, hey, here, call me here. You have a question here. Is that pretty much what that's all about? Absolutely. And that sort of point comes up often in malpractice claims evaluations. Well, the doctors told me to do this, but I didn't know how to get a hold of him. Or I called the wrong number and he wasn't at that office. So it's a, that is an important loop to close. Another point is just to avoid abbreviations. I mean, all of us as doctors are used to thinking in terms of abbreviations. Often we use them and don't, aren't even aware of the fact we're using them. But patients don't understand them, and they can often lead to misunderstanding. So, you know, it's easy to write SOB for shortness of breath, but the patient isn't going to rem- remember what that means two minutes later, even if you, you had a, a prior conversation using that term. 
Yeah, I battle that all the time. It's a healthcare, unfortunately, is an acronym happy industry, and everybody needs to realize there's a there's a health literacy problem out there. And AHA can mean American Hospital Association, but it can always also mean American Heart Association. I'm sure you see that all the time in these claims that are filed. I do indeed. Another point is don't use all capital letters in an email. Some people do this. I think they do it because they think that they're making it easier for people who maybe don't have 2020 vision. But in fact, a lot of people are offended by it, and it's kind of equivalent to screaming. And it's just good general advice not to use all capital letters, but in particular for communicating with patients, I wouldn't recommend it. And do you see, doctor, when you're analyzing these claims, I mean, are you actually seeing lawsuits and things based on physician email? I've seen cases where the email communication became an issue in the claim and may have led to settling, for example, a claim that was thought to be otherwise defensible, either because of the tone of the email or its content. Yeah, it doesn't happen often, but it happens enough that we certainly address it, and that's what our program is about today. And is this becoming certainly more so than what you saw a few years ago as far as email being involved in claims? Yes, it is, because email is being more widely used, especially by younger doctors and by younger, I would say, physicians under the age of 45, most of whom have grown up with computers and are very computer literate. And so that's probably good that you guys are getting out in front of this. I hope so. (laughs) I hope so. The other important point is that on emails, ideally, you should use a secure network. And by secure network, I mean one that uses encryption. That's actually required by HIPAA, the Health Information Portability and Accountability Act. And if you don't use a secure network, there's always the danger that you're really not protecting the patient's privacy. And that can get you into a lot of trouble. And it's important to note that a standard email service does not meet HIPAA requirements. I myself wasn't aware of this until I got involved in this project several years ago. And I'm suspect that a good number of physicians are not aware of that. So try to limit online communications with your patient to an encrypted, secure network. And if you don't have the opportunity to use one of the many encrypted, secure networks out there, then you should put a disclaimer on the email calling attention to the patient that this is not on a secure network and stating that the electronic mail is not secure, that you cannot assure privacy will be maintained, and uh, also alerting them to the fact that you may not check your email every day, and email should not be used for urgent or sensitive issues. Well, with that, I'd like to thank Dr. David Troxell, who's been our guest. He's the medical director of The Doctor's Company. I'm Bruce Japson of the Chicago Tribune. I've been your host, and you've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD Radio on XM160, the channel for medical professionals. ReachMD, online, on demand, and on the air. Please visit us at ReachMD.com. And I'd like to thank you today for listening.